Evidence and Answers. Are near-death experiences real? Do they prove that there's life after death? In our world today, people grasp onto anything that has to do with the afterlife. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucharin. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetic Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Dr. Gary Habermas will explore this fascinating topic. This study was taken from this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference, recently held in Honolulu, and featured some of the most prominent Christian speakers from this country. Without delay, let's jump right into part one of a message entitled, Near-Death Experiences, with guest speaker, Dr. Gary Habermas. Today, we're going to talk about near-death experiences, and what does this do? Well, It's a way for us to explain to those who are blind that guess what? There's more to your life than just a big pile of flesh. You're more than just an animal. You're a spiritual being. And knowing that you're a spiritual being, knowing that God gave you that spirit, hopefully we can use this information to point them back to their responsibility to their creator. First in repenting to the Lord and then living for God. So, As we talk about near-death experiences, indeed, it proves that we're not just animals, we're not just beings, we're spiritual beings. And though I'm not an expert, we have one here today, Dr. Gary Habermas has his PhD in philosophy from Michigan State University. He teaches at Liberty University in the Baptist Theological Department. He's written over 20 books on the resurrection and other articles on near-death experience, You can check him out on GaryHabermas.com, but will you please welcome our guest speaker today, Dr. Gary Habermas. Well, I'm glad to be with you again. You might wonder, what does near-death experiences say about a Christian conference? Some people even wonder if near-death experiences are Christian or how they might relate to Scripture. Let me tell you where I'm going and why I'm doing this. Well, I'm doing it because I was asked to speak on this topic. How's that? That's an easy way out. But I teach philosophy. And if I had been asked to give another lecture on what's wrong with naturalism, now, that's probably going to be a little more foreign to you folks out here in the island because I understand that, you know, from my times here, you folks have such an amalgamation of religions and different views here, and some mystical and some not, and different perspectives. But in the Western world as a whole... North America, Northern Europe, Australia, naturalism rules our universities. And naturalism is the worldview that teaches, is the natural world, is all there is. And it generally says that what we know, we know through sense experience. It's what we call, it's a worldview that most embraces the scientific method. But unlike Christianity, we have no problem with the scientific method. You can come to Liberty University and get a degree in any of a lot of scientific fields. Matter of fact, believe it or not, Liberty University is starting a medical school this fall. So we have no problem with science, but we interpret science underneath the hand of God, underneath the sovereignty of God. But when you talk to folks who don't believe in the supernatural, once again, naturalists teach The natural world is all there is, and what we learn, we learn through scientific data. 
as a general rule. And so when you're talking to them about the topic I discussed last night, the resurrection of Jesus, they would tend to say, yeah, that's kind of interesting evidence, but I don't believe in a supernatural realm. I don't believe there's anything beyond this realm. And sometimes you need an icebreaker. You need something to open up the field a little bit to show them that there's more than what they're saying or seeing and that the Christian worldview is the best way to talk about the evidence. Now, this other lecture, if I've been asked to to give that one, it's a lecture called that I call Filling the Naturalistic Void. And there are signs that naturalism is failing today. You folks may know way more about that on the islands out here than we know on the mainland because there's so many, from what I understand, so many Hawaiians and others who live on the islands who are going to say, I've seen some of the phenomena on the other side, so to speak. Dr. Rhodes talked about some of it last night. Yes, you don't have to convince me. There's more to this world than the natural. So maybe folks have a little bit of a head start on this. But I will oftentimes go from either the resurrection to near-death experiences or near-death experiences to the resurrection. I often use them in tandem. And I use them to let a person, let a naturalist, take a little step and then a bigger step. Now, if near-death experiences give us actual information, no matter how little, if the near-death experiences give us some information about consciousness beyond the initial moments of near-death, hence the name, near-death experience, what happens after the first few seconds, a naturalist might be compelled to allow, all right, we're learning more and more scientific information, I'm a little more open to the afterlife, all right, this is tough for me, but what do you think's out there? And then I'll say, have you ever heard about the resurrection of Jesus? Because for a lot of people, it's a big step from no supernatural to the resurrection. Maybe take a little step and say, well, do you believe in an afterlife? Most Americans do, according to the surveys. And so I can say, well, then take a little bigger step, and let's take a look at the resurrection. That's one reason I do this lecture. Second reason is this, and it's an extension of that one. If near-death experiences speak truth in some of the areas we're going to be talking about, then this is another evidence that naturalism may be on the way out. Naturalism may be wrong. As the Bible proclaims, this is indeed a supernatural world. Now, there may or may not be supernatural, there may or may not be near-death phenomena in Scripture. I'm not here to tell you there has to be. But in a few passages in the New Testament, in particular, we read of experiences like near-death experiences or deathbed visions and the like. You know, most of us, if we were to run around and take a survey, I would say a fair number of us have these stories in our own families or in those of our closest friends. You don't have to look very far, in my family anyway, to know of a few of these accounts. It's said of D.L. Moody that in his biography, I've not read this, but I'm told that as he lay on his bed dying, he said, I see heaven opening up and I see gates. And this is beautiful. This is everything I thought it would be. He was 
sitting right, lying right there in his bed. He wasn't having a near-death experience. But he said he looked up and he saw his two grandsons, and he named them. And he says, there the boys are. I haven't seen them for so long. This is wonderful. And I'm told his last recorded words were, if this is death, it's easy. Now, Scripture doesn't say that death is easy. For some people, it's easier than others. But some people have a look over the other side. You may remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen saw a vision of Jesus on the right hand of God shortly before dying by stoning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul tells us that he had an experience where he was caught up to the third heaven. And he says twice, whether out of the body or in the body, I know not which, which is interesting because Paul was very much committed to the resurrection of the body. And yet he tells in 2 Corinthians 5 that there's an intermediate state, which according to most Christian interpreters is disembodied. So immediately after death, we have a disembodied state followed by a re-embodied state. It's what the famous New Testament scholar N.T. Wright calls life after, life after death. You have life after death immediately. I don't think there's any kind of soul sleep. Not in Scripture. Paul says that it's better, far better, in Philippians 1, to die and be with Christ. And he says, I had this experience. Now, some of the old commentaries, before there ever was a book on near-death experiences, some of the old commentaries said, if you look at the timing, Paul tells you how long ago this happened. We know about when he wrote 2 Corinthians. If you do the work, if you do the like we talked about the timeline last night. Commentators say this works out to approximately the time Paul was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Maybe so, maybe no. It's hard to know. This could just have been a vision that the Lord gave him, or it could be when he came very close to death. You remember they left him dead, and his disciples came and took his body out and buried him. Well, they were going to bury him. May or may not be near-death phenomena. Hard to say. All right, so keep in mind... I'm not just doing this to tell really neat or, in some cases, kind of scary stories, but I'm doing this to fit into a larger picture to say that naturalism is not all there is in the world, and once a person takes that first step, which according to surveys, this is a pretty popular step, we might be able to say to them, hey, are you open to looking at evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? And plus our conference is on afterlife. So hopefully for all these reasons, I hope it fits in. All right, let's talk about death for a few minutes. There are different definitions of death. And in different places, different rules obtain. I mean, you, you don't have machines to check all the time to see if someone is dying. And sometimes you can get a death certificate for somebody and never have them checked out by medical personnel. That could happen. Happened in my own case when my wife passed away. So sometimes there's greater or lesser attention paid to exactly what, you know, what's going on in this case. Now let me start with the easiest definition and work my way up. Okay? The lowest definition of death, by lowest I mean easiest temporary state, you can come back from this, it's called near death. What's the near death state? A near death state is when for at least a short period of time, you don't want it to be real long, but for a short period of time, you have an apparent cessation of life signs, such as an EMT might come, someone might check, 
and say, from what I can tell, we're not in a hospital, we're not in an emergency room, but what I can tell, there's no pulse. From what I can tell, this person's not breathing. A temporary, hopefully, temporary cessation of life signs. And a definition of near death often goes like this. It's a state from which you can be expected to die if no one intervenes. So you want someone to intervene. That's why we call 911. That's why we have emergency rooms. All right. Next, more difficult definition is a heart that's not working, a heart that's not beating. And people can take that for a few minutes. After that, it becomes very difficult, as I'll tell you why in just a moment. But this may be with an EKG, a machine that measures the situation going on inside your heart, or might be less formal than that. Somebody who's very well trained can say there's signs that this person's heart's not operating. That's a little more serious. More serious than a heart not beating is a brain not operating. And we call that, the machine that checks that out, is an EEG. And a person without brain waves is in a lot of trouble. Now, you can have flat brain waves and live. In fact, probably the best known situation are cases where people fall through the ice. Now, you folks wouldn't know about that out here in the islands, would you? If you fall through the ice and you fall into a freezing cold body of water, oftentimes folks are revived after long periods of time. They can be underwater sometimes for 15, 20 minutes. And they can be revived because the brain sort of goes on suspended animation when it's down in freezing water. So you can come back. People have come back from flat EEGs. Okay, the fourth level, you have near death, heart death, brain death, and the last one is the one naturalists often like the most. It's called biological death. And here's the definition. If you came back, you weren't. If you came back, you weren't. Biological death, by definition, is irreversible. Someone who's biologically dead gets buried. The other three levels you can come back from. Now, the better we get in the sciences, the better we're able to see where a person is, and hopefully through certain machines or resuscitation techniques or whatever, we're able to revive people, and when they come to, they often report experiences. Just today, Dr. Rhodes and I were sitting in the room here on campus. I got an email from a friend, and he said, hey, have you seen this article? I opened it up, and it was an account of a fellow who was near death for 45 minutes. His heart stopped beating. He had a massive cardiac arrest. Now, here's why this is such an evidential state. When I first started looking into near-death research over 40 years ago, in the early 1970s, the ideal case, not so ideal for the person involved, but ideal for the researcher, is to have somebody who had flat heart measurement and flat brain measurement, but who came back from it, lived oftentimes without any brain damage or heart damage, which really surprised people, and told of experiences that they underwent while they had this combination. And it was the ideal case in the 70s 
to have what's called flat brain, flat heart. Now, let me just stop there. If I'm writing a paper, this is an informational footnote. I've given this lecture before, and I've had medical doctors say to me, now, be cautious and tell people what flat brain, flat heart means. It doesn't necessarily mean there's no activity going on, but in the case of the brain, flat brain, EEG, it means your upper brain function, the highest brain function, is not measurable. That's what they can say. They can't say there's nothing whatsoever going on, but it's your upper brain function, so that if somebody's putting their hand in front of you, it takes a certain amount of brain function to be able to report higher streams of consciousness. And so it's been discovered not very long ago that if you have a cardiac arrest, not heart arrhythmia, if you have cardiac arrest, about 11 to 20 seconds after a cardiac arrest, you are, as much as is measurable, your flat heart, flat brain. As much as is measurable. Because just seconds after cardiac arrest, the brain stops operating. So you have this unique state where the, neither the heart nor the brain is operating. And when somebody comes back, and this fellow did in this article that they sent, he had a very incredibly detailed and he said very beautiful case. Now, this is where the fun starts. The person comes back and they report near-death experience. What do we do with these cases with some of the difficulties involved? This is a Christian conference, right? What do you do when people say things like this? Well, I'm an atheist. And, man, that was great experience. I mean, I saw heaven firsthand. And God said, it's not my time to die. But when it is, I get to come right back there. Woo! That's great. I'm going to live my whole life with this vision of heaven. Something's wrong here. Atheist? Heaven? God said I'm okay? What's going on? Or even the more basic question. Why did he feel good during that time? That's puzzling. Or what if the person comes back and says, I was told in that near-death state that all religions are ways up the same mountain, just different paths, and I think this light I saw was Jesus. I'm not sure. But maybe somebody else would see it as Allah, maybe one of the Hindu gods. Don't know. But that's just my experience. Now, what do we do with some of these issues where near-death experiences seem not to accord with biblical truth. Well, I'm going to introduce a, an argument today that says we can indeed pick and choose like we do so much in life. Certain experiences are judgeable on one hand, but not on another aspect, and that's what I'm going to argue today. But first, let me begin by just telling you a few stories. Now, what I'm interested in are evidential cases. I started collecting these over 40 years ago, and I have over 100 evidenced near-death experiences. What do I mean by an evidenced near-death experience? An evidenced near-death experience would be if you observe something this worldly, I mean, here in this world. See, when a fellow says, I died and I saw an angel, what machine should I turn on to make sure this person saw an angel? Oh, that's the angel machine. It's right over there on the counter. We don't have one like that. It's hard to judge someone's experience. Just like in everyday life, someone says, I fell asleep and 
I had this really, really cool dream. I'm not even sure it was a dream. It was really, really cool and blah, blah, blah. And we just sit there and go, hmm, sounds cool. I guess you had to be there. But we don't have any way to see inside their head or talk about their dream. That's how some near-death experiences are. They're otherworldly, what's sometimes called in literature, transcendental spiritual experiences. But I'm talking about evidential ones, and evidences usually have to do with the world around us. Let me give you an example. If I'm lecturing here, and there's already all of a sudden a disruption in the crowd, and somebody's having problems, which on the surface could be a heart attack, hard to say. Maybe cardiac arrest. I'm not a medical doctor. I don't know. Someone dials 911, or we have a one or two medical doctors here, and they rush over. I've got a daughter who's an emergency room nurse, and she's worked there for seven years. Maybe, maybe they're going to know what to do. I don't know. But let's just say I stop talking because this is, this, is, this is a serious situation. And I look up, and it's 347. And someone dials 911, and the paramedics get here. My daughter's a paramedic and an EMT, too. And they get here, and the person is stabilized at 422. They've been out for 45 minutes. Now, let's say when they come to, they say, what are you all looking at? You. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Why are you asking? Man, we had a close call. You were, appeared to be almost dead. Really? I assure you, I was fine. Now, we're all pretty nervous. We thought you were pretty close to dead. Well, I don't know why you thought that. I was just kind of sitting right up here up by these fans, and I was kind of looking around. And Now, if you think about it, we identify ourselves from where our point of consciousness is. If I'm on a ladder, I'm going to identify myself by where I'm thinking, what I'm seeing, my senses. If this person said, well, I saw a guy down there in the ground, but I didn't know it was me. I mean, you know, you're all crowded around, and besides, I'm up here, and I was kind of noticing the room, and Hey, did you all hear that ambulance 15 minutes ago? Yeah, it sounded like it was pretty close, didn't it? Yeah. Right over on the other side of this building, there was a car accident over there. How do you know that? I saw it. You couldn't see it. You were dead or something like that. No, I assure you, I saw it. It's a green car, blue car. The stupid guy ran the stop sign, and he got plowed on the side. How do you know? I saw it. Well, this is interesting. So somebody here is a police dispatcher. And they say, well, I'm going to check this out. And you get back to the office Monday morning, and at 4.05, there was a call for an accident. Same color cars, ran the stop sign, plowed in the side. But I'm not supposed to be able to report that, because from all observable signs, I didn't have any observable heart or brain waves. Now I'm back, and I'm healthy. I'm glad to be back. But I'm telling you, I saw that. And if I didn't see it, how could I tell you about it? In fact, even if there were windows in this building, we could not look through that building and see the accident. Nobody here watched it happen, but I did. And I was up there. And I'm making this up. This is just an example. But there are all kinds of cases like this. I'll tell you a few, but this is beyond the first stage that we call near death. And the person is revived, 
And they'd probably take them to the hospital and be checked out and everything, but they could be home this week and doing all right and having this incredible experience, which oftentimes changes their life. And let's just say for fun, so we can answer some of the tough questions, let's say when they come to, they say, I'm an atheist, but I didn't expect to see anything, but I did. I guess life's more complicated than I thought. And you go about your everyday work. You know, there was a very famous British philosopher named A.J. Ayer, one of the best-known atheists in the world. And shortly before his death, he had a couple of near-death experiences. How would you like to be an atheist and have a near-death experience? doesn't work with the worldview. A.J. Ayer, everybody else stands before a yellow light, a normal light. A.J. Ayer said he stood in front of a red light. I guess that means stop, I don't know. And he said, I was profoundly uncomfortable the whole time I stood there. And now I'm a little more open to belief in the afterlife. But I really hope there's none. But I was there. And he wrote a couple articles trying to explain how this is compatible with atheism. And to show you how strong our worldviews are, one of the articles he ends like this. To all my, he's British, to all my atheist friends in the U.S., don't worry, I'm still an atheist. But the red light he stood in front of, guess what he identified the red light as? He didn't want to say God, because he's an atheist. He called him the superintendent of the universe. Well, that's convenient. Maybe if we call him the superintendent of the universe, we still don't have to believe in God. But you could tell when he, I just read an article these last few days in my room about articles that have been written on his experience, because as he wrote more articles, he tried to explain this thing away a little bit, but he couldn't explain it away. He said, you know, I, it was real. What am I going to say? We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes part one of Dr. Gary Habermas's study entitled Near-Death Experiences. Evidence and Answers is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to team up with us, please start with prayer. And then to donate, log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week for part two of Near-Death Experiences with your host, Dr. Pat Zucrin.